This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hi and welcome to episode 233 of the Broadcast Podcast. This week we are bringing you an online session from a recent training hub where Tom O'Toole brings us the Book of Song of Songs and looks at it from an angle that you might not have actually heard it spoken about as much before and uh, yeah, it's very refreshing, really insightful. Enjoy it. It was just before Christmas I was speaking to, to Tim as he was putting together the programme with Richard and he said to me it'd be great because we often do like leadership based stuff at these but it'd be good to have something just um, a bit more theological or, or bible teaching um what did i think and it didn't take long before i, I suggested we do song of solomon because it's just a book that over the last few months personally i've been on a journey with in, in my own devotional times i've been reading it loads i've been i really helped by it uh, just as god's been speaking to me through it I thought it'd be fun to have a look at it together. Now, I don't know what your experience is with Song of Songs. You may um, have taught it. You may, I'm sure you've read it. You, you may have heard teaching on it. Um, but it's an interesting one because there are two very different ways it can be read. There are two very different ways it can be taught. Now, historically, it's usually been taught as a book about God and his people, about the love relationship between Jesus and the church. So if you read the Puritans, uh, they go to it loads. They're teaching on it all the time. Spurgeon has so many sermons on it, the, the church fathers as well. It was always seen through this lens. Recent decades, there's been a bit of a, a shift and uh, some people have started trying to strip the spiritual side of the book away and make it more a manual about relationships, marriage, sex, and so on. And uh, from there, sometimes it ends up um, launching into some pretty dubious, unhelpful, sometimes even abusive teaching into, into relationships. And for me, hearing some of that teaching, it kind of ruined the book for me for a while. Um, I had that in the back of my mind. I, I think that's probably the way to read it. And then I get to it when I'm doing like a Bible reading plan. I think I, I just don't understand. I don't know what to do with this and would give it a bit of a wide berth. Um, but these last few months have been a, a rediscovery for me, uh, seeing it through this traditional lens, seeing it as uh, a, a reflection on Jesus and his love for us and the love that he would uh, invite us to have for him. It's a book where we can see perhaps more, more vividly, more boldly, more, um, more colourfully the passion and intensity of the love which the Lord has for his people. I put on the slide this quote from the, the old Jewish commentator, Rabbi Akiva, uh, who maybe slightly uh, exaggerated, but I love the heart behind it. The entire history of the world from its beginning to this very day does not outshine the day on which this book was given to Israel. All the scriptures indeed are holy, but the song of songs is the holy of holies. And that's the way this book has been prized historically, both with the, the old Jewish interpreters and through most of the church age. I'll give, just before we launch into it, five quick reasons why I think reading it this way is the right thing to do. Now, uh, firstly, 
if it's about marriage, then it shouldn't ever start there because marriage in the Bible is a picture of Christ and the church. We we can see this as we read the prophets, as we read in Ezekiel or Hosea, how Israel's seen as God's wife and sometimes God's faithless wife that has been spoken to in those terms. We can see it in the Gospels as John the Baptist introduces himself as the best man, drawing attention to the bridegroom, who is Jesus. We can see it in, in the epistles as Paul writes uh, in Ephesians. He's teaching husbands and wives how to relate to each other. Uh, and he says it's a mystery, but it, it's Christ and the church. Your marriage points to something bigger than your marriage. We can see it in Revelation as well. The whole climax of the story is the wedding supper of the Lamb, isn't it? And the bride comes down from heaven dressed in white. The, the whole story is a story of the marriage of Christ and the church. And our human marriages should point us there. So it's right to read Song of Songs that way. Uh, secondly, then, uh, historically, I mentioned it before, but traditionally, this has always been the way the book's been read. And we, we should take that seriously. The third one is when we dig into the, the poetry, it's a book of romantic poetry, and when we look at the images in the poems, we see a lot of it's drawn from the Garden of Eden or, or from the tabernacle or from the promised land. And uh, these kind of images of people being in God's presence are what the relationship is so frequently compared to in the song. Fourthly, then, Jesus taught that we should expect all of the Old Testament scriptures to point to him. Uh, when he was talking with the, the Pharisees and um, he was saying, you, you'll diligently search the scriptures. You think that in them you find eternal life, but you refuse to, to come to me who they point to. The whole scriptures point to Jesus and Song of Songs is no exception. And then fifthly, the very name of it, Song of Songs, that's deliberately echoing the same kind of rhythm as Holy of Holies, the, the place of God's presence. Well, this is the song of God's presence. So we should expect to meet him. So reading the song is, it's not just a passive experience. It's, it's an invitation to step into the love of God. That's what the song is. It's an invitation to receive that love and to express our love to him. So what I wanted to do this morning, I, I, I thought I'd just give us a little buffet of a few of the themes that come up in these poems. We'll just briefly touch on four things all very different to each other. So this is just going to be a, a, a little bit of a, a selection box of what we see in the song. Uh, hopefully, um, whether all four speak to you, I'm hope, hoping that in that is something, uh, one or two of them, that just get your mind racing, that get your, your heart fired up for Jesus. Um, and then I'm hoping we'll have a little bit of time to go into to breakout groups. And then um, uh, I've got a question on each of the four, but what I was thinking we'd do is just pick one of the questions that particularly grips you and have that conversation in your group. So here we go. Here's the first one. And we're calling this one the kisses of his mouth. And it's right from the start of the song. So let me just read the first few verses. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is perfume poured out. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We'll extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Here we get a high octane start to the book from the bride, from the beloved. She's not coy. 
She's not holding back. She's straight in there with what she wants. And what she wants, it isn't just a peck on the cheek. It's not an awkward Christian side hug. She wants his kisses. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about the kiss and what a weird thing it is. Let's imagine an alien from outer space beamed down. You had to try and explain it or you had to write an essay on what is the kiss. It, It wouldn't be an easy thing to do. It's not easy to put into words. And yet we know it's a magical thing, don't we, that no description can really capture. The kiss changes a relationship irreversibly. Once it's happened, there's no going back. It's also the marker of a healthy marriage. I was listening recently on a a BBC podcast uh, called Why Do We Kiss? And they they had a scientist on there uh, who'd who'd done some uh, studies in healthy marriage. And what they realised is there was a massive positive correlation between the frequency of kisses in a marriage and the health of that marriage. Actually, even uh, better correlation than with the frequency of sex. So this bride here, she wants her lover's kisses. Charlie Cleverly says her lover's kisses are the theme of the bride's life. It's also the theme of everyone who seeks God to know him deeply and to be known. Now, can you imagine at this moment there might be um, kind of some snickering, some uh, thinking, hang hang on, this is just strange. I, I can't imagine kissing Jesus on the mouth. You know, that's the kind of thing where people want to take the spiritual side out of Song of Songs, they'll often say. And Of course, the answer to that is, well, you're not supposed to. This is poetry. So let it do what poetry does. You don't uh, make it a literal thing. You let it stir up feeling, right? So the the same intensity of her longing for that kiss gets transformed into our longing for the closeness and presence and intimacy with God. Now, this can be a difficult theme. I think actually perhaps particularly difficult for men to engage with sometimes, this desire to be close with the Lord. But that word desire, that is the heart of it. I I remember uh, when I was first getting to know my wife, Emma, and you probably have similar stories if if you're married yourself, of getting to know someone and and you're drawn to them. You want to be near them. You want to be where they are. That's the, the theme we get here. And that's the challenge for us when it comes to God. So you might as well how do I do it? What does this look like? And the thing with a kiss is you don't need to be taught. It's not like there's an instruction manual step by step on the kiss. Step one, lean forward. Step two, move your lips into this. It doesn't work like that. It comes naturally. And there's something that comes natural in pouring our heart out for God. The word in our New Testament that gets translated as worship is the word proskuneo. And it's a compound word I mean, two bits, the pros and the kineo. The the pros literally means to to move towards, to draw close, could say to lean in. And the kineo bit means to kiss. So when we're talking about worship, it's picking up on this same imagery of drawing close for the kiss. That's what we do as we worship. So that's just the first piece in the song that I wanted to highlight. And maybe if that stirs up some thoughts in you, that's where you might want to go in the breakout. The second one, though, uh, I'm going to read on. Uh, we're calling this one, You're Beautiful, My Love. And I'll pick it up from chapter one, verse five. So, uh, again, it's the bride talking. And she says, I am black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I'm dark 
because the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I've not kept. Let's just explain what's going on here. Our first thing to say is we shouldn't read these words in, in a racial way. That's not what's going on. We'd be misunderstanding if we take it that way. We've got the bride. She's speaking about being beautiful. She knows she has a natural beauty about her. But she also points out a couple of times that she's dark. And this is her insecurity. Now, personally, I really like summer. I, I love it when the sun's shining. I love going out in the sun. I remember last summer, hottest day of the summer, I, I had some study to do. Where I thought, I'm just going to go to the park. I'm going to get my notepad, get my book, get a couple of pens. I'm going to lie out in the sun all day do my study. I thought everyone would be doing the same. There was about three of us, like most people had stayed inside because it was too hot. Well, I'm, I'm married to someone who grew up in a different part of the world and who grew up in a place where it is actually hot, where the sun does shine a lot of the time. And she has a very different attitude than me when it comes to the sun. And often she'll she'll tease me with a, the saying, uh, like only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. I'm your typical Englishman in that saying. We've actually even had moments on holiday where we find the bit of the beach where the exact line where the shadow starts so we can sit next to each other but I can be in the sun and she can be in the shade. You view the sun differently when you're in a hot country and this song was written in a hot country, it was written in Israel and going out in the sun would be something you'd only do if you had to. And so it became a bit of a status thing. Those who were rich, those who were powerful, could afford to stay in the shade and have other people running around outside in the sun. Those who had less means didn't have that option and often would have to work out in the sun. And that, that's her. She had to work in the vineyards. Her brothers made her go and do that work. And so she caught the sun. She, she has a tan. And this is a marker of a low status. And she said, look, my own vineyard I haven't kept. There's something about me that um, that is marked here. She sees herself as tarnished. Perhaps that's something you can resonate with. This is a spiritual book, and we're meant to see in it echoes of the spiritual life. Perhaps even when you think about drawing near to Jesus, you find it a difficult thing because uh, in some way you see yourself as, as tarnished, as unsuitable. Maybe that's saying, do not gaze at me because maybe there's some way you'd finish that sentence. It might not be the same as what it is for her, but maybe you'd come to Jesus with, do not gaze on me because, because of my ministry disappointment, because I had, I had all these hopes and dreams, but it's not quite worked out the way I wanted. Because I tried this thing and it didn't quite go to plan because my, my ministry is just small. It's insignificant. Don't gaze upon me. I haven't made the cut. Or maybe it's ongoing struggles with sin. Do not gaze on me because I'm still wrestling in this area of life. I've not cracked that yet. Maybe it's rejections you've experienced from other people. Maybe key leaders who've walked away and you've taken it personally and it's made you uh, feel like, no, I can't be open. I can't be loved. Maybe it's comparison with others, seeing how other people are further along then you maybe it's just ordinariness. Maybe I'm just a regular person. There's nothing special about me. And the bride certainly resonates with that. She says in chapter two, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now they weren't um, unattractive flowers. They were just everywhere. They were common flowers. Maybe like comparing yourself to a daisy 
today. There's all these reasons we might come to Jesus. We do not look upon me because. And yet the way the groom sees the bride here is so different. Jason Roach says this. I think this is spot on for what's happening in the song. A groom in his wedding speech does not pretend that his wife is just the same as every other woman. That would be ludicrous. Instead, he deliberately picks out those things that bring him joy and he celebrates them. And in chapter four, that's just what the groom does here. And he goes through bit by bit, expressing his praise, comparing it to different things, how it makes him feel. But let me just give you a few of the, the highlights as he summarizes things together. He says, how beautiful you are, my love. How very beautiful. That's verse one. Verse seven. You're altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Well, verse nine. You've ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You've ravished my heart with a glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How sweet is your love, my sister, my bride. You see, we might all have... Uh, our, our lists, our answers to do not gaze on me because. And yet the groom sees things differently. And this is how Christ sees you. He'd say those words to you. You're altogether beautiful. There is no flaw in you. You have ravished my heart. And theologically, we know this is true, don't we? Charlie Cleverly, again, points out a few of the factors behind how Jesus can say this to us. He highlights the finished work of Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit beautifying us, from the inside out. God's own personality and his has said covenant love for us and our destiny as the future bride of Christ. I think sometimes we can act and talk as though self-image issues are for people in their teens, people in their 20s. And we can act as though it's a thing that doesn't really affect church leaders. I don't think that's true. I, I think it's an ongoing struggle for everyone. So maybe this is an area you want to pick up and chat about in the groups. Here's our third bit I wanted to dig into. We're calling number three, I sought him, but found him not. There are two, what we call night sequences in the song. These are dreams that the bride has. And the first of them we pick up in chapter three. Uh, it's the first five verses, but let me just give you verse one and two for the moment. She says, upon my bed at night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. I'll rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. In chapter five, there's another similar one, um, a little bit different because he comes visiting her, but she's already gone to bed and she's like, no, no, I, I can't get up, get dressed again. I'm not going to go through that again. She sends him away. And then she regrets it. But in both, you've got this sense of longing for the presence, but not experiencing it. There are times in the Christian life when all of a sudden you're wanting the presence of Jesus. And yet he seems to be distant. He seems to be absent. He seems to be not there. Now, seems is an important word. It's doing heavy lifting in that sentence because we know he'll never leave or forsake us. And yet there are times in our experience, we, we're just not feeling it. We're, we're struggling to connect with him in any meaningful way. And this is what can sometimes be referred to as the dark night of the soul. It might seem a confusing thing when it happens. Like why would God do this? 
Why not just sweep fellowship all the time? Why can't it be that way? And yet there's something about the perception of absence that can create longing in the heart. Uh, one of the jokes that Emma and I often make is when, when one of us go on a trip, the uh, the other will send a message and be like, hey, are you missing me yet? And usually the answer is, well, no, not yet, because it's been about 20 minutes. I'm still on the bus. You know, it hasn't really uh, hit for me yet. And then uh, a bit later, it'll be the same message. Are you missing me yet? Well, well, no, I'm, I'm on the train. I've got my coffee. I've got my book. I'm, I'm doing OK. And yet there always comes a moment that the answer changes. And flips, it's like, yeah, I, I really am. I'm missing you. Now, this absence creates this sense of longing, this sense of wanting the presence that can remind and rekindle the relationship. And something like that can happen in these moments when God seems distant. Julian Hardiman puts it this way. One effect of the times when Jesus seems to withdraw is to make us long for him all the more. And to seek him and that conscious sense of his peace and presence. If you're in a state where God seems distant, seems inaccessible, please realise that this does not mean he's not working in you. He is there, but his spirit is doing a different work when you don't feel his presence, but instead feel a sense of absence. That sense of absence is given to you by God to make you seek after him all the more. So maybe that's something you've experienced and maybe that's the conversation you want to have in the group. The fourth and final little piece of this buffet I want to bring, I'm calling Let Me Hear Your Voice. And there's a couple of moments in the song, one of them uh, in chapter 2, verse 14, and one of them in chapter 8, verse 13, where we get a very similar sentiment expressed. In chapter 2, this is the groom speaking, uh, and he says, oh, my dove. In the cleft of the rock, in the covert of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And then chapter 8, verse 13, it says, Oh, you who dwell in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. You see, the groom is calling out for his lover's voice. He wants to hear the bride. And Jesus is calling out for our voice and inviting us to speak. There's lots of places I could go with this. I could talk about um, Jesus hearing our voice in worship or how we could speak for him in evangelism or, or learning to find your own voice as you speak for him rather than just parroting others. But actually what I want to do just in uh, a couple of minutes is prod a little bit. How are we doing as churches uh, encouraging the voice of the bride of Christ? to be heard and drawn out. I want to ask the question, whose voices in our church are not being heard? It's interesting, isn't it, that the song champions the female voice. How are our churches doing with that? It starts with the, the bride. It ends with the bride. 60% of it is the bride. Now, what I don't want to do today is open up the whole theology of it for, for the place where there, there's debate. You can do that another time if you like. But I do want to ask the question, what about in, in the rest of church life? What about in the vast swathes of church life where whatever your theology is, you're comfortable? Well, how are you hearing? How are you doing at drawing out the voice? What about when it comes to people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different culture, different class? Are you hearing? 
Are you listening? Amy Bird puts it really well. She says, let me hear your voice. The bridegroom beckons the bride twice in the song. Does the church encourage all her people the way Christ encourages his bride? He says, for your voice is sweet. And yet many women in church today, along with other marginalized people, hear that opposite message. They're silenced. They're hindered from contributing in the theological, creative, intellectual heart of church life. In the song, we see mutuality and beautiful reciprocity between the male and female voice. In fact, the bride's voice is dominant, both opening and closing the song. What does this tell us about leadership? Leadership brings out the voice of others. It encourages in the true sense of the word, giving courage and support. It gives power too, because leadership recognizes personhood and dignity in men and women and sees them as gifts. So leadership invests in and facilitates harmony of the voices of God's people. Leadership says, let me hear your voice, because that's what love says. So just having to think about what might we be doing? How might we be silencing people in church? Now, um, it may well be that these things are not happening in your church, but these are just some things that struck me as possibilities. One of them is perhaps a lack of invitation to teams or meetings. Who gets to be on what team? Who gets brought into what conversation? Or who gets to decide what conversation happens? Who gets to ask the questions that we consider? Sometimes it's just a lack of genuine asking. It's a lack of taking the time to say to different people, hey, how's this thing that we're doing? How's this conversation landing with you? What do you think about it? How does this make you feel in giving time and space for expression? Sometimes it's when someone's a solitary voice in the room, it makes it really difficult to speak. If someone's the only person, let's say, who's not white or the only person who's female in the room, and it's like they're being asked to be a representative of a whole cohort of people, and yet they're the only one against a, a room full of people who see it differently. It can be a really intimidating situation. Sometimes it's just difficult to get a word in. Sometimes someone's a bit shyer, sometimes people are a bit unsure, and it's hard to break into a conversation full of confident people expressing opinions. As leaders, there's something, I want to hear your voice. So we need to be deliberate in saying to the quiet person in the room, hey, I'd love to hear what you think about this and drawing them out. Sometimes it's dismissive jokes that have been made about groups of people. And I, it's not enough to just not make the joke. But when we're seen laughing along to certain jokes, what does that say to the people who the jokes are dismissing? Sometimes it's what we call banter, where we're taking digs at each other. But culturally, uh, maybe uh, some of us get that. But for others, it, it can offend. It can say, hey, we, we really don't value you. We really don't want to hear from you. Perhaps it's interruptions, finishing someone's sentence for them, even in agreement, is quite silencing, isn't it? This can be dominant personalities who do this. Sometimes uh, there can be a, a sense of an assumed consensus. Someone's brought into a room with, well, we all think this way, and if everyone else in the room does, it's hard to be the dissenting voice. On this idea of hearing the voice, it seems to me just speaking broadly, not, not speaking about any church in particular, that broadly, it seems the church is a bit behind 
the world on this. Sometimes we even hide behind theology, which may be correct theology, but we miss the desire of the groom, Jesus, that the voice of the bride, all of the bride, would be heard. <laughs>